0: You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org.
1: This morning's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 5 verses 15 through 21. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Thanks be to God.
0: Good morning, church family, and to our guests joining us online. It's just great to have you with us this morning. And for those that may not know me, my name is Tim Allen. Yes, that's my real name, and I serve here as lead pastor alongside an incredible staff team and elders and deacons. Just wanted to fill you in on just an encouraging conversation I had this week with our main contact at the Nichols Concert Hall, where we have gathered in the past, if you can think back to those days. And uh, yeah, it was encouraging overall, and we are working hard on regathering plans that you'll be hearing more about in the very near future. And I hope, like me, that you are encouraged to see sort of the, the light at the end of the tunnel. And what that means, too, is that we, it might um, shape a little bit of our live streaming plans, too, and potentially push that back a little bit as we are um, able to, uh, Lord willing, get back into the Nichols Concert Hall in the, in the near future. And so let's keep loving and serving one another and the community around us as we eagerly anticipate regathering. Actually, the passage we're going to look at this morning emphasizes, among among other things, our fellowship with one another. We have been journeying through the book of Ephesians together in a series called Unity in Christ. Ephesians is all about the unity of the church in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, all according to the purpose and plan of God. This unity that Christ has secured on the cross is both vertical and horizontal. Through Christ's death, he made a way for alienated and separated sinners like you and me to be reconciled and reunited with God. And he has also made us one with each other, creating a new multi-ethnic and multifaceted people that displays his beauty, his manifold wisdom, as a beacon to the world around us. The first half of Ephesians really explores these these sweeping truths of who God is and what he has done through Christ and how we are a part of his plan to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And then in the second half of Ephesians, Paul gets more to a ground level and shows how we are to live out these truths. The banner over chapters four through six, we could read as Paul's call to walk In a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, there in the beginning of chapter four. And what he does then is he develops what this means by taking up the themes of walking in unity, walking in holiness, love, light, and as we will see here in Ephesians 5 15 through 21, walking in wisdom. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth. Unite our hearts to fear your name. We give thanks to you, our Lord and our God, with our whole heart. Help us to glorify your name forever. We praise you for your steadfast love toward us and for rescuing us from the depths. Turn to us, Lord, and be gracious to us. Strengthen us today through the hearing and the nourishment of your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen, amen. Watch where you're going. Perhaps you've said that to your child or thought that as you encounter those those cracks, those uneven sidewalks near your home, or perhaps those slick spots of ice and snow along the walk. I know I thought that as I carefully navigate the minefield of kids' toys that I'm I'm pretty sure are purposefully designed for maximum parental foot pain or think about the gap between the platform and the train. Mind the gap. You know, at the beginning of our passage here in Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, Paul urges believers in, in and around the ancient city of Ephesus to look carefully then how you walk. Look carefully then how you walk. In essence, Watch where you're going. Look reminds us that this is an important and an urgent concern. Pay attention, we might say. Carefully implies doing something accurately and precisely. Among my fellow soldiers, we might say, tread lightly. And the word then points back to what has just come before. Paul summarizes the transformation that Christ has brought about in our lives that transformation from the kingdom of darkness into the light with the quoting of an early Christian hymn in verse 14. It says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Here is the gospel on full display. To those who are asleep, God says, wake up. To those who are dead, God says, arise. And to those in darkness, the light of Christ has dawned. So just as Jesus told the man that he healed in John 5, 8 by the pool of Bethesda, he said, get up, take up your bed and walk. So we who have arisen are to walk. We who have arisen are to walk in wisdom. Watching where we're going suggests purpose and direction in life. It is not aimless, nor does it just nor is it just stretches of, like, frenzied activity followed by uh, by crashing. Instead, there is a steady progress toward a goal, knowing where we're going and acting deliberately to get there. So Paul's point is that we need to take a close look at how we walk and make sure that we are walking wisely. This means being willing to pop the hood, to look at what's going on below the surface. And this means being honest with ourselves as well. Everything worth doing requires careful attention. Think of the time and attention you give to the things that matter most in your life. Our journey as a disciple of Jesus Christ should also be approached with wisdom and with careful cultivation. Proverbs 15 verse 21 Emphasizes, it says this, folly is a joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight ahead. And so in the verses that follow, Paul gives three stark contrasts, each with accompanying explanation that reinforce how we are to wisely watch where we're going. The first of those contrasts, found in the rest of verse 15 and verse 16 as well, is not as unwise, but as wise. The word for unwise here means foolish or senseless. The stark contrast that Paul is painting here is between foolishness and wisdom. Proverbs 1:7 paints this same contrast when it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We have encountered wisdom in key places along the way in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, God lavishes his grace in all wisdom. And in verses 17 to 19, Paul prays that God would impart the spirit of wisdom. And in chapter 3, verse 10, God's manifold wisdom is that which is displayed in the multicultural community united as fellow members of the body of Christ. And so now in Chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, wisdom grows legs and walks. Verse 16 then further spells out how we are to walk in wisdom by, as the text says, by making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The phrase here, making the best use of the time, is literally buying back the time. This is commercial language that Paul uses metaphorically for making the most of the time, or taking advantage of every opportunity. A similar thought is found in Psalm 90 verse 12 that says, So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. The reason we should make the best use of time, Paul says, is because the days are evil. Wisdom is especially needed in this age, and as we will see in Chapter 6, verse 13, God's armor is needed so that we can stand firm in in the day of evil, in the evil day. And so our first takeaway is simply this, watch where you're going by making the most of every opportunity. You know, over the course of this pandemic, some of us have been forced into a slower pace. And perhaps now we are facing an opportunity to reset in some ways. We might have, picture a shelf, and having had, perhaps in our lives, a lot of things taken off of the shelf, now we can choose what should go back on that shelf. And as one sister in our church reminded me this week, we also need to make sure that the things we put back on are our choice rather than what other people tell us we should care about. But for others of us, perhaps life has still felt hurried and frantic, even during the pandemic. I know my family can resonate with that. We need to ask God to help us to step back, to examine our lives, and to reveal what He wants for us in terms of rest, pace, and margin, in terms of the priorities that we should have, and also in terms of the peace that He desires for us. Wise people grasp the reality that time is a precious commodity. And this passage is a reminder to live with intentionality, taking advantage of every opportunity God places before us. It means seizing gospel opportunities, being willing to be inconvenienced from our perspective. Are we making the best use of the time God has given us? Or do we find ourselves at times distracted, perhaps lazy, mindlessly binge-watching shows or frittering away the time. Please hear me. There is a legitimate place for rest and renewal. God created us that way. This is a reflection of the rhythm that he displayed in, in creating all things and then resting on the seventh day. But are we purposeful in our rest? Do the things we do when intending to rest actually recharge us? We should make the most of every opportunity with an awareness of the evil that that surrounds us. We are now light in the Lord, as we have seen in chapter 5, verse 8. And as we await our final redemption, we do not fear evil. No, the power that Christ, the power that raised Christ from the dead will overcome. So let us live wisely, taking advantage of every opportunity in this fallen world Conducting ourselves in a manner, ultimately, that is pleasing to the Lord. Well, how this is done is what is further spelled out in the rest of the passage. The second contrast that Paul paints is found in verse 17, that of not foolish, but understanding. Foolishness has its roots in the Old Testament wisdom tradition, particularly in Proverbs The fool who appears over and over again in in Proverbs is one who is careless, lacks understanding, and forsakes wisdom. Rather than remain in the past where, as Paul has reminded us, we were darkened in our understanding, we are to instead understand what the will of the Lord is. In Ephesians, Paul has been using uh, or has been talking about Um, the will of God in a few different ways. Paul says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We are adopted into God's family according to the purpose of his will. And God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so here simply is our second takeaway. Watch where you're going by growing in your understanding of God's will. Not only should we grasp the significance of God's will but we need to grow in our understanding of it if we are to keep walking wisely. The problem is that we often use that phrase, God's will, to refer to more so like personal guidance for our immediate future. Perhaps uh, personal guidance surrounding a a major decision we might make, surrounding something like our career or, or a spouse. But Paul uses God's will here to refer to God's saving plan to unify all things under the headship of Christ. Our lives should be lived in light of this grand vision, this vision of God's cosmic gospel of redemption. God's will certainly includes things like personal decisions, but they are are to be situated in the broader scope of his plan to unite all things in Christ. Wisdom is found in the will of God. And how can we, how can we better grasp God's will? Look no further than the pattern Christ has given us and pore over the pages of Scripture. Klein Snodgrass writes on this topic, perhaps we would not have so much trouble finding God's will for important decisions if we were more accustomed to discerning His will throughout life, making our lives conform to the pattern Christ has given us. As we watch where we're going, we need to ask, is this the Lord's will? Only in knowing His general will as revealed in in His Word can we gain a greater sense of His particular will for our lives. So watch where you're going by growing in your understanding of God's will. May God's word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The third contrast that Paul paints here is found in verses 18 through 21. Not drunk with wine, but filled with the Spirit. Verse 18 begins, And do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery paul uses this phrase as a general warning against what we could call a, a dangerous and unacceptable lifestyle but more importantly it provides then a strong contrast to what the kind of the, the main thing he's going to take up next and that is the filling of the holy spirit the word debauchery, though, here, I can't say that's a word that we use every day. Uh, we've never had, you know, when, when our, our kids are taking a bath and my daughter has these little letters that stick to the side of the bathtub, I can't say we've ever had her spell out the word debauchery in the bathtub, but it basically means spending or using something excessively. Paul actually pictures drunkenness as Wasteful living, the exact opposite of what it means to make the best use of the time in the, in the previous verses. It is a symbol of the height of foolishness. You know, along the way here, I've been highlighting a couple of different Proverbs. The book of Proverbs essentially contains practical wisdom for living. And this is done in a poetic form. I just want us to feel the impact Of Proverbs 23, 29 through 35, where the writer takes up this theme of drinking to excess. So, this is Proverbs 23, 29 through 35. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Dear church, there is no place for drunkenness in the Christian life. How can we look carefully, as Paul has called us to, how can we look carefully at where we're going if we're drunk? Consuming alcohol Itself is not sin, but the sort of excessive and wasteful indulgence that Paul is talking about here is. So many people drink to drown the pain, to escape, perhaps, or even even to fit in. Along the way, not realizing its power, not realizing the insidious nature even of, of addiction. But rather than being controlled by alcohol... We are to be filled with the Spirit. That is the contrast that Paul paints here. Instead of being under the influence of alcohol, we are to let the Spirit take f- full control of our lives. And what is fascinating about that contrast is that alcohol leads to, to foolishness and to, to excessive behavior. If you think about this contrast that Paul's making here versus the Spirit being filled with the Spirit, cultivates the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, one of those being self-control. Paul uses and kind of capitalizes on this fullness language that he has been using throughout Ephesians. He has earlier prayed that the Ephesians would be filled with all the fullness of God. He emphasizes Christ as the one who fills all things, And we are being matured into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There in chapter 4, verse 13. The Spirit, too, shows up from the very beginning in Ephesians. And just a couple of prominent examples. He is the promised one with whom we are sealed. The church is a holy temple in the Lord being filled with the presence of the triune God. Chapter 2. And Paul warns, In chapter 4, verse 30, to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. But what's particularly striking here about being filled is the, the characteristics of this verb. Just wanted to walk through and highlight a couple of those. First of all, it's an imperative, it is a command, not a suggestion. And it is something that cannot be ignored. Second, it's plural. It refers not just to individuals, but to the entire community of faith. Third, it's passive. Be filled. It is God that does the filling. There is no ritual or formula that Paul gives, but it comes only through our union with Christ. The union with Christ that Paul has been emphasizing throughout Ephesians everything is in, by, of, from, and for the Lord Jesus Christ. And fourth, it's in the present tense, signifying a consistent pattern of life, a work in progress, if you will, and the presence of Christ made real in the life of every believer. So here's the third takeaway. Watch where you're going by being filled with the Holy Spirit. Watch where you're going by being filled with the Holy Spirit exactly what this looks like Paul spells out in what comes next there are five participles for our for the english majors among us this is a, a great a great message to think about how these words are linked to one another but these participles are attached to the main command to be filled it's like Paul's answering the question what does it look like to be filled with the spirit and so each of these is attached to that and, and Two of them are very similar. So in the end, there are four characteristics that he gives here. Four characteristics. Fellowship, worship, gratitude, and submission. First, fellowship. This comes across in verse 19, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. If you notice, this first characteristic here is horizontal. It is directed to one another. And it's hard to know exactly what the difference is here between psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, but it could very well be that psalms were the Old Testament psalms that were sung. Hymns were like those composed, found uh, in scripture, like in Ephesians 5 verse 14. And then spiritual songs being songs inspired by the Holy Spirit. These were used to remind, um, to remind each other in the body of Christ what God has done through Christ and to instruct and edify fellow members of the body. Even when we worship in song, it has the effect of encouraging our fellow believers. I have to admit, one of the things I've enjoyed the most about our pop-up prayer gatherings in the park has been the opportunity to sing together. And if you are willing to join us, I I highly recommend it. Fellowship, in general, though, is one of the ways that we can help one another watch where we're going. We need one another. We need to help warn each other, too. And fellowship and encouragement along the way helps us to watch where we're going. The second characteristic is worship. Worship. The rest of verse 19 says, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Here, these songs are directed to the Lord. There is a, a vertical component. These not only are directed to the Lord, but spring from the heart. And just one, one thing I should add here is that it's not as though the first group of songs are only directed toward people, and the second is only directed toward God. It's not as though when we get together, we are to sing sing at each other like that. Good morning, nice to meet you, or something like that. That was a terrible song, but it is, these are one and the same. The songs that we sing have both a vertical component and a horizontal component. And what Paul does here is highlight both of those dimensions in how we sing. So by saying with your heart, it's not as though Paul is requiring people to have some sort of emotional experience. Heart here refers to the center of one's being. It's about the integrity with which we sing, not the feeling. Do the words we sing express the reality of our life in the spirit? Now, just as a brief aside, there is room for singing aspirationally as well. That is singing words that we, almost as a song prayer, asking God that these words would come to reflect the attitude of our heart. The third characteristic is gratitude. Paul writes in verse 20: Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is yet another vertical component. We are to give thanks to God the Father. And notice the just the, the Trinitarian shape that this passage has. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. By giving thanks to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Densely packed into this verse here, we are given the the frequency of thanksgiving, that it should be regular and constant, um, a thankful attitude of mind and heart that is expressed regularly in thanksgiving and praise, this just permeating our entire lives. Not only the frequency, but also the grounds for thanksgiving. We're told to give thanks in everything. Think it back to chapter 1, every spiritual blessing that is ours in Christ. Just as a side note, some have taken this to mean that we are to give thanks, that if we are to give thanks for everything, we are to give thanks for things that are evil. No, I, I don't take it that way. I believe that God abhors evil. And to give thanks in His name means that we cannot praise or thank Him for that which He detests. Not only are we given the the frequency of thanksgiving, um, but also the ultimate source and goal of thanksgiving, that it it is to be directed to God the Father. The final characteristic in this passage here is that of submission. Verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word for submitting here means to to arrange, under. It's kind of an odd term, but it was used in ancient times, for example, to describe an ordered formation of soldiers under a superior officer. And this characteristic is horizontal once more. We've seen some that are vertical and some that are horizontal. Paul pictures here mutual submission, one to the other, within the body of Christ. With the underlying motivation being that this should all be out of our reverence for Christ, our fear of Christ. Just like the fear of the Lord that, is, uh, that pops up time and time again in, in Proverbs Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So let us follow the example of Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let us heed Paul's call earlier in Ephesians 4, verse 2, to demonstrate humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love toward one another. Let us lead, not lording it over those that are entrusted to our care, but being examples to the flock. This is what reveres the Lord. This is what, by extension, honors fellow members of Christ's body. John Stott wrote something that just kind of pierced my heart on this. He wrote, sometimes a person who claims to be filled with the Spirit becomes aggressive, self-assertive, and brash. But the Holy Spirit is a humble spirit, and those who are truly filled with Him always display the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It is one of their most evident characteristics that they submit to one another. Verse 21 here really serves as a hinge between what is prior, and then also what is about to happen in Ephesians 5, through, really through, all the way through six, verse nine, where Paul is going to provide specific instances of what submission looks like in marriage, in the family, in work. This verse here, 21, is exactly that. It is a hinge that cannot be ignored. Let us be a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit through both attitudes and actions that are directed vertically toward God and horizontally toward one another. A church whose practices are directed toward God and one another is under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Such a church is spirit-filled. Such a church is a spirit-filled congregation, a true temple of the Holy Spirit. So church, Here's the bottom line. Watch where you're going by making the most of every opportunity, growing in your understanding of God's will and being filled with the Holy Spirit through vertical and horizontal attitudes and actions. Let me say that one more time. Watch where you're going by making the most of every opportunity, growing in your understanding of God's will and being filled with the Holy Spirit Through both vertical and horizontal attitudes and actions. In reflecting on this passage, I couldn't help but see how Jesus so perfectly embodies so much of what Paul is talking about here. He himself is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God to those who are called. Think of the time and the intentionality that Jesus had with his disciples, especially Peter, James, and John. Think of the opportunities he took for gospel conversations, opportunities like that with the woman at the well in John 4. And think about his keen awareness of the hour of his suffering and how he prayed to his father knowing that the hour had come. Jesus, in his agonizing in prayer in the garden before his death, prayed to the Father, "'Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done.'" And as he taught us to pray, he taught us, "'Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.'" Jesus was anointed by the Spirit at his baptism, full of the holy spirit as he faced temptation in the wilderness and he fulfilled perfectly what was read from Isaiah what he read from Isaiah 61 the spirit of the lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the lord's favor Jesus thanked God for hearing him. He thanked God for providing for him. He thanked God for his saving work. And he thanked God in revealing himself. Jesus modeled a life of gratitude and thanksgiving before his father. And ultimately, Jesus submitted to the father's. Will. This is captured perhaps no more stunningly than in Ephesians or in Philippians two verses one through eleven. And so, as we close our time together, would you hear these words? Be reminded together, O Church, of of all that Christ endured for you and for me. Philippians two. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Our Father, we thank you for these truths and for this call to watch where we're going. Father, would you give us grace, intentionality? Would you help us to look carefully at where we're going to perhaps trust you in turning the microscope onto our own lives to reveal the ways in which we are not making the best use of the time? Lord, would you strengthen, would you bolster our understanding of your will through your word? And Father, would you indeed fill us to overflowing with your Holy Spirit? Would you use these attitudes and actions that are both vertical and horizontal, Lord, to to display the fullness of the Spirit in our lives? God, would would our church, would would this community of faith be one where your Spirit is so evident in our communal life together. And so God, would you cultivate within us fellowship, worship, gratitude, and submission as we are reminded of the ultimate submission that you, Lord Jesus, uh, the way that you gave yourself on the cross. And so as we go from here, Lord, would you strengthen us, equip us, Help us to watch carefully, to watch where we're going, knowing ultimately where we are going. And your plan to unite all things in your son. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' precious, matchless, powerful, and holy name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EVF, Subscribe to our podcast, and to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.